chapter 4, that we shouldn't be surprised or overwhelmed when trials are being imposed upon us by the unbelieving world. Peter tells us that, that when that is happening, it's not as though something strange is happening to us. No, this is to be expected. Jesus told us that this would happen. And this is the very thing we see playing out in our text for this morning. What we find in Ezra chapter 4 is a story that illustrates how being chosen by Christ means being hated and opposed by the world. So yes, what we say here at Emmaus every week is true. It's gloriously true. In Christ, you are loved more than you could ever know. But make no mistake, Christian, you are also hated. Let's read our text. We'll start in verse 1 of, of chapter 4, and we'll read the entire text together through verse 23. Here's what it says. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Syria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house for our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Reum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Reum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osniper deported, settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. 
and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That is why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer. To Rehim, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree. And search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings. That rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. This is the word of the Lord. So the more I have studied this book, the book of Ezra, and the more I have thought about it, the more I've come to realize that there's more to this book than first meets the eye. I mean, it is true that the first four chapters of the book are rather straightforward. We've seen that, right? God releases his people from Babylon through the decree of Cyrus. They return home. They rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And then here in this passage we just read, we see that when it comes to God's people rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, they are being opposed. But at the end of chapter 4, something rather interesting happens. What happens is that the narrative order of the book of Ezra diverges from the chronological order of Ezra. Let me just show you a slide real quick. Ben, if you wouldn't mind putting up that slide. There it is. On this slide, you'll be able to see that chapters 1 through 4 span the entire chronology of the events in Ezra. And then once you get to the end of chapter 4, the book does sort of a, like a time warp. I actually like to think of it as a, a sort of like a flashback, like in a movie where you see the present life of a character in a story, but something triggers a memory in that character. And then suddenly the screen starts to blur and swirl and you hear that harp sound effect, right? And then you're transported to a past event that is impacting the present life of the character. That is not unlike how the book of Ezra is behaving here at the end of chapter 4. And in the, in the next week, in next week's sermon, when Pastor Ben 
preaches chapters 5 and 6, you'll see more of why this is. But for now, what I want you to see, what I want you to get, is that chronologically speaking, the story that's being told in Ezra is punctuated by the events that happen in chapter 4. This book is punctuated by God's people facing opposition. This is actually crucial for our understanding of the passage for this morning. Because if you think about it for a second, just, just remember how the story begins. It begins with God's people being given an opportunity to return home. But then this same story concludes with God's people experiencing overwhelming opposition. It all started out so optimistically, didn't it? I mean, at the beginning of Ezra, God's people are given the chance of a lifetime only to find themselves on the receiving end of the world's hatred and hostility. But that's just the thing. That's the very point that's being made here. That when it comes to our involvement in God's mission, when it comes to human involvement in the mission of God, more times than not, opportunity is accompanied by opposition. I want you to see that today. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. That's the main point of the sermon for this morning. That in the mission of God, when it comes to his mission, opportunity is most often accompanied by opposition. This is something that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. So just notice what Paul is doing there. Notice that on the one hand, he's able to identify the opportunity. A wide door for effective work has been opened to me. But on the other hand, he's also able to identify the opposition. He says, there are many adversaries. So far as I can tell, Things are not any different for God's people here in Ezra. They've been given an opportunity. But at the same time, that opportunity is accompanied by opposition. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at three forms of opposition that cause the rebuilding efforts to stall in Ezra chapter 4. We see three forms that opposition takes in this passage. Let's consider each of them. The first form of opposition is that the people were pressured to compromise. See this at the beginning of chapter 4, where the people have rebuilt the temple, right? Sam mentioned this a couple weeks ago when he preached on uh, chapter 3, that the temple was ready for functional use by this point. Right, all, all, it didn't have all of, it, all of its furnishings. It was not uh, complete in, in, in the real sense, in the fullest sense of that word, but it was at least ready to be used for worship. So as far as the rebuilding efforts were concerned, things were going about as well as anyone could have expected. Slowly but surely, God's people were making headway. They were plodding along. They were doing exactly what they had been sent to do. And it's at this point that they are met by some friendly faces. People who live in a nearby region come to Jerusalem. Look at what they say in verse 2. They say, let us build with you. It looks like you have your work cut out for you there. Why don't you let us help? For we worship your God as you do. We've been sacrificing to him for some time. 
So on the surface of things, this looks like an offer of friendly cooperation. It, it appears as, as though these are just nice people who want to help out. But the people of God don't see it that way. Look at verse 3. They respond saying, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus has commanded us. Now, doesn't that seem just a little bit narrow-minded? I mean, if you compare it with our contemporary sensibilities of tolerance and inclusion, doesn't it seem like Zerubbabel and Jeshua, doesn't it seem like they're being just a little bit rigid here, a little bit too dogmatic? Why not just let these people help out? It's not going to hurt anybody. Well, I wouldn't be so sure. Because look at verse 1. The very first thing that chapter 4 says about these so-called helpers is that they were adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. That's how the text identifies them. Adversaries. So this supposed friendly offer of cooperation is more cloak and dagger than anything else. The smiling faces that greet them and offer to lend a hand are nothing more than a mask hiding a much different agenda. And the reason that God's people knew this, the reason they were able to see this for what it truly was, is because of what it says in 2 Kings chapter 17. Starting in verse 24, 2 Kings 17 tells us this that the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came back and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now, it sounds like this is a good thing, right? It sounds like these people are going to be taught the ways of the Lord. They're going to be taught the law of God. But tragically, that's not what ended up happening. Because it says in verse 29, that even though this priest had returned to Samaria, every nation that was there still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. So you can see there in that text that the claim that these people worship God the same way that Israel worships, that claim is just patently false. They don't worship the same way. They don't worship Israel's God as they do. Instead, they worship Israel's God as one God among many other gods. But the problem with that is that the God of Israel says, I am God, and besides me there is no other. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall place no other God beside me. This God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he rightfully demands exclusive worship. Which means that if Israel 
makes an alliance with the people of the land, if they partner with them in this endeavor, then it would go against everything, absolutely everything that God had called them to stand for. It would totally compromise their mission. So these were no friends of Israel. They were not friends of the children of Abraham. Instead, these were adversaries, plain and simple. And this is only confirmed or further confirmed by what happens next. Look at verses 4 and 5. These verses tell us that the people of the land, the very people who have just offered to help, they began to discourage the people of Judah. They made them afraid to build. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, and even into the days of Darius, king of Persia. So not only had God's people been pressured to compromise, now they were being demoralized by coercion. That's the second form of opposition we see in this passage. Verse 4, the Hebrew literally says that the inhabitants of the land made the hands of God's people so weak that they could not do the work that they had been sent there to do. And because of this, the text tells us that they were afraid to build. So just notice the contrast between verse 3 and verse 4. In verse 3, God's people took a courageous stand against their enemies. You have nothing to do with us building a house to our God. But then, once the opposition is being ratcheted up, once it's intensifying, in verse 4, the people grow more and more discouraged. They grow more and more afraid to the point where they eventually just give up. And if that weren't bad enough, things actually get worse from there. Because these adversaries of Israel, they're not just satisfied to leave it at that. Things go way past threats and bribes because they didn't just want Israel to be docile and compliant. No, these adversaries wanted to punish the people of Israel. They wanted to destroy God's people. They wanted to undo everything they stood for, everything they believed. So starting in verse 6, we see the third form of opposition. That the people were hindered through conspiracy. The hostility that began in the reign of Cyrus and persisted throughout the reign of Darius actually begins to intensify even more during the reign of Ahasuerus. This hostility becomes more formalized. It actually, it actually becomes an organized conspiracy that takes this from being a regional dispute between Jews and Samaritans and it makes it into an issue of national concern. This is a, this is a conspiracy that reaches the heights of the Persian Empire. And that's sort of ironic, I think. Because remember how the book of Ezra starts out. Remember how it begins. It begins with God's people being released to go back to Jerusalem because of a decree that is issued from the throne of Persia. But now in a bitterly ironic twist, from that same throne, from the throne of Persia, comes a decree for the work to cease. Just look at how it plays out in the text. Chapter 4 mentions three letters that are written to the king of Persia. Each letter is written to oppose the people of Israel. The first letter is mentioned in verse 6. 
The second letter is mentioned in verse 7. But the third letter is really the one that receives all the attention, starting in verse 8. And I think this is significant because one of the things you notice as you, as you read this letter is that you pick up on that, that there is a, a palpable disdain for the, for the Hebrew people. There is a current of visceral hatred that runs throughout this letter. Just look at verse 12, for instance. It says, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. Now, now listen to what they say. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Jerusalem, in their minds, is a rebellious and wicked city. Then verse 15, they, they even double down on this. They elaborate on it, and they say that Jerusalem, once again, is a rebellious city. But they go on to say it's harmful. It's a dangerous city. It is a city full of sedition. That is why the city was laid to waste in the first place. And in the very last verse of our passage, verse 23, when Artaxerxes orders the work to cease, it says that the adversaries of Israel went in haste to tell them to stop. And they made them stop by, by force and by power. So just notice that. They went in haste. They couldn't contain themselves, right? They were giddy about causing the, the work of God's people to cease. I mean, their mentality is, is totally backwards, right? For these conspirators, the very place where God has chosen for his holy name to dwell, they regarded it as wicked and rebellious. And so they delighted in sabotaging the people of God. Woe to those, said the prophet Isaiah, who call evil good and good evil. And yet that's the very thing we see happening in this letter. This letter is claiming that the glorious purposes of God for his people are not good, but evil. And I think that when we as the people of God experience this kind of thing that we're looking at this morning, when we find ourselves on the receiving end of the world's hatred, there are two temptations we will face. We'll be tempted in one of two ways. The first way we'll be tempted is in the temptation of personal vengeance. When we are hated and opposed for what we sincerely believe, it's natural for us to feel angry and helpless. And out of a misplaced sense of justice, it can be that we want to get even. You know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If they're going to be that way, then why shouldn't I respond in kind? We know what God says about that, right? We know what Scripture teaches that Jesus said, you shall love your enemies, you shall pray for those who persecute you. But there can be a real gravitational pull. Even in everything we know, there can be a real gravitational pull in the human heart to want to take matters into our own hands, right? To, to say, vengeance is mine, thus saith me. So that's the first temptation. The second temptation is equally problematic, but in the opposite way. It's the temptation of fear and discouragement. 
This is precisely what we see happening in our passage, right? The people of Israel were discouraged by the people of the land. They were made to be afraid. And so what did they do because of their fear and because of their discouragement? They gave up. They stopped rebuilding the city. They threw in the towel. And if I had to guess, I'd say that between these two temptations we're talking about, this second one is probably more common to those of us in this room. For many of us, there's a mounting sense of fear and discouragement because when we look at what's happening all around us, it's getting harder and harder to sidestep the fact that we are hated by the world. Things are reaching a point in our culture where we we can't gloss over that, right? We can't pretend it's not happening. It's right there in your face, and it can be incredibly discouraging if you pay attention long enough. And it can be that we become fearful about what's going to happen, what's going to come of us. This past week marked the end of the month of June, which as you have been made painfully aware over and over again, is Pride Month. There are a diminishing number of places in our world where the sexual anarchy of the Pride Movement has not yet reached. And this is particularly unavoidable during the month of June. Can't drive through town. Can't walk down the street. In many cases, you can't even walk out your front door without encountering the Pride Progress flag. And I don't know about you, but this has been incredibly heavy on my heart lately. Much more than even a year ago. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. I mean, as I've thought about it, I've realized the shooting in Nashville earlier this year, that probably has something to do with it. But also there's just this weight of like, hey, I'm raising kids in a culture that's deteriorating. I'm pastoring a church in a culture that is deteriorating rapidly, right? Whatever the reason, it's left me heavy-hearted. Because I cannot ignore the fact of what... The pride progress flag is. I can't ignore what it represents. And what I'm about to say, I don't mean to be sensational or dramatic. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not interested in hobby horses. We don't do that from the pulpit here at Emmaus. I don't want controversy. I, I have zero desire to be controversial. But I cannot shrink back from saying what I believe is true. And the truth is that the pride progress flag is a sign of contempt for what we believe. It is a signal of the world's hatred toward what we believe about what it means to be a human being. It is a signal of their hatred of what we believe about the created order. And the fact that God made this world to put on display his wisdom and his glory. I mean, guys, there's no other way to read it. There's no other way to look at it but as a sign of the world's contempt. And I'm not saying that everyone who displays a pride progress flag has contempt for you on a personal level, but I am saying that that is the meaning, the cultural meaning and significance of the flag. It is an emblem of opposition toward God and his people. We need to honestly name that. We need to accurately read the moment. 
And the reason I think it's so important for us to do this today is because as one of your pastors, I have a responsibility toward you, right? I have a responsibility to shepherd you, to live as a Christian in this cultural moment with all of the unique forms of opposition that it brings. So with the little time we have left, what I want to do is I want to share with you three ways that you can cultivate a faithful posture when you are hated by the world. Three ways that you can cultivate a faithful posture when you're hated by the world. Number one, remember that the Christian life is warfare, but not against flesh and blood. To accurately read the moment, we need to recognize that we are not in peacetime, we are in wartime. But ultimately, When it comes to our warfare as Christians, our enemies are not any person or any groups of people. Our enemies are the devil and his hosts. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, says the Apostle Paul. But we wrestle against the cosmic powers influencing this present darkness we are witnessing. As Christians, we wage war against the spiritual forces of evil. And how do we do that? How is it that we wage this warfare? Well, Paul tells us, by putting on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand firm in this evil day in which we find ourselves. In Romans chapter 13, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on his righteousness. Cover yourself with his love and mercy. Clothe yourself with his strength. Friends, in wartime, Jesus doesn't just give us armor. No, Jesus himself is our armor. He crushed the head of our enemy on the cross. And by doing that, the Son of God has made himself our shield in the heat of battle. And what this means is that our enemy, he awaits his final defeat which will happen when Christ returns at the end of the age. Jesus, at that time, will throw Satan and his demons into the lake of fire where they will be destroyed once and for all. But until then, until that happens, the devil rages. He is furious because he knows his time is short. And so what he's doing right now, even as we speak, is he is seeking to destroy everything that is treasured by Christ. What is it on this earth that Jesus treasures the most? He treasures the church. Scripture tells us that we, the church, we are his treasured possession. We are the apple of his eye. We are his beloved, cherished bride. And he showed this in that he spared no expense to obtain us. He went so far as to purchase us with his very own blood on the tree of Golgotha. Friends, the mission of Christ when he came to this earth was slay the dragon so you can get the girl. And Satan knows this. He knows it with every fiber of his being, which is why he's directing all of his ire, all of his malice and fury at us. We are in the crosshairs of the enemy, friends. And so when you see what's happening in the world around you, when you see the sign of their contempt, Flapping in the breeze. Remember where it is that's coming from. 
The world hates you because Satan hates you. He's the God of this world. The second way I want to encourage you to cultivate a faithful posture is rely on God's presence with his people by practicing the means of grace in community. It's becoming more clear to me every day that the greatest source of strength that we have in this world is the presence of Christ in the midst of his church. Or two or three are gathered in his name. He said, there I am among them. He promised us his presence. I want you to listen to this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his book, Life Together, he says this. The Christian in exile sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. They receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord in reverence, humility, and joy. They receive each other's benedictions as the benediction of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if there is so much blessing and joy, even in a single encounter of brother with brother, how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, let him praise God from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace and nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Emmaus, it is an immense, immense privilege that we have here that every single week we get to gather around the word of Christ and the table of Christ. We get to pray and confess sin together. We get to receive assurance together of God's gospel promises toward his people. We get to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We get to greet each other in the name of the Lord. These things we do, these aren't just random practices that we happen to think are a good idea. It's not as if we, we randomly came up with these things because we were throwing things to the wall to see what sticks. No, these, these are means of grace that God by his authority, has appointed for us so that when we practice them together by faith, the presence of the triune God is really ministered to us in a powerful way. Friends, through these ordinary means of grace, practiced in the church, we are touching heaven. The book of Hebrews puts it to us this way. It says that in the church, we are tasting the powers of the age that is to come. We are experiencing that glorious hope of what Jesus prayed when he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's happening in this room right now. That prayer is being answered. Speaking of that, here's the last thing I want to say. I want to encourage you to rekindle your heavenly hope each day by contemplating your future in Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said, how happy is that man who sets his eye upon the future? According to Spurgeon, he who lives for the present is a fool. But wise men are content to look after future things. I wonder about you. I wonder what 
your thinking. I wonder how that lands on you, what Spurgeon just said. Most of all, I wonder if heavenly mindedness is the daily business of your life. Let me ask you something. Do you know what it means to live for the future? Are you living for what is promised to you in the world that's to come? As you wander through this barren wilderness of this world, are you nourishing your soul with the manna of expectation that falls from a heavenly table where you will one day feast? I mean, here's, here's pastoral advice for you as you consider that today. Here's what I want to say. For every look you take at what's going on in the culture around you, take 10 looks at the future hope that awaits you. I have a sneaking suspicion that one day when we who are of this generation of believers, when we are standing together before the judgment throne of God, one of the things that he will have every right and every reason to rebuke us for is for our lack of longing for heaven. How easy it is for us to be preoccupied with the concerns of today, with the here and now. And how precious little time we spend kindling our hope for the glories of tomorrow. Too seldom have we prayed with the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, O Lord, are my strength and the portion that will satisfy my heart forever. In Psalm chapter 17. David is lamenting the hatred he's receiving from an unbelieving world. He says, the wicked are violent toward me. My enemies who surround me, they close their heart to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly to me. With their eyes, they look for ways to cast me to the ground. David says, my enemies are like a lion waiting to pounce. But then just listen to where he places his hope. Even as he is surrounded by bloodthirsty, merciless enemies, he says this, the hand of the Lord will deliver me from men whose portion is in this life. They are satisfied with the things of this world. But David says, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. One day I will awake in your presence, Lord, and there I will be perfectly satisfied with your likeness. Friends, if you are in Christ today, that is your future. That's what's awaiting you. It's what the church for generations has referred to as the beatific vision. The beatific vision is that hope of future blessedness that will be ours when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what Psalm 17 is showing us is that the hatred we experience in this world it brings with it a surprising blessing. It brings with it the blessing of showing us our daily need for heavenly hope. Spurgeon says it this way. He says that the iron hand of anguish has its way of wringing from regenerate souls the greater heavenly longing. This is why the Apostle Peter says that when you're insulted for the name of Christ, then you are blessed. It's like, wait. Am I hearing that right? When I'm insulted, I'm blessed? Peter's like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And it's totally counterintuitive. 
unless the beatific vision is your reference point. So Emmaus, my closing encouragement to you comes from the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. He says, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, you have been crucified with the Lord, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, so that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you can be sure that you will also appear Him glory. Yes, Christian, for now you are hated. But one day, one glorious day, you will live face to face with the one who loves you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we long for that day. We long for when we will appear with you in glory. But until then, we know we will find ourselves hated. We will find ourselves opposed. Even more than that, though, Lord, we know that because you're with us, we will find ourselves deeply loved and cared for by you. So, Lord, for my friends today, for all of us, help us to know that it's true, to know that you are with us, that you won't leave us or forsake us. Your pledge to your people is, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Lord, when the end of the age comes, we know that there is being stored up for us a treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. That treasure is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us by your power. And it's there that we're placing our hope. In your name we pray. As I'm sure you well realize and are anticipating, we have a chance to respond to what we've heard this morning. We've talked about the means of grace. We've talked about our heavenly hope. Well, as we come to the communion table today, we get to experience this. We get to experience the means of grace. We get to experience our heavenly hope because this is a means of grace that gives us a foretaste of the heavenly life that we will one day enjoy. On the night that he was betrayed, when Jesus instituted this meal, he told his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. One day we will feast with Jesus. We will feast with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In his kingdom, we will be with him at table and he will feed us with his own two nail-scarred hands. But until then, we receive this bread and this cup, emblems of his suffering. Because we know that we follow one who was despised and rejected by men. We follow a man of sorrows. And as that man of sorrows, Christ suffered the hatred of the world. But he did so that, that we would be chosen and loved by God for all eternity. If you've not received that love today, if you're not following Jesus, then please do not come to this table. This meal is for those whose hope is set on heaven. 
So this table, if you're not a believer in Jesus, is not for you. But the Jesus who meets his people at this table, he is for you. He is for you. So come to him today. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from how you've been living. Turn to Jesus in faith. Place your trust in him. Call upon the name of the Lord. You will be saved. Church, would you come? We'll begin in the front row and we'll move row by row to the back of the room. We'll come down this aisle over on this side of the room. Would you come to the feast? Your Jesus is waiting.